How many of you got to smell the um, burning dust coming off your heating systems this week? Anybody? Let me call out the uh, the obvious. For those of you in the room, you may not be noticing it so much, but those of you watching this on a screen right now, you're like, how did Brent get his head to be the only thing that shows up at church today because he left his body at home? I've been told that because of this black shirt that everything else just completely disappears. So I knew that black was slimming. I didn't know it was disappearing. So I apologize for the floating head thing you've got going on, the Wizard of Oz aspect if you're watching this online you know this is what living and learning looks like in the digital age so we'll figure that out i was trying to get my uh my uh johnny cash thing on today and thought it would be cool and i was gonna say it's blown up in my face so it's probably a bad pun so anyway i'll move on it's smelling dust on our heating systems i was going somewhere with this the seasonal change is on the, uh, the the forefront of our conversation, is it not? I'm sitting out in the entryway and all of us are just talking about waking up to that brisk feeling and how everything has adjusted and changed and stuff. And so in Maine, we look forward to these adjustments. And then in the next day, we're saying, okay, I'm done. You know, give me the next change. So winter's going to show up first snowstorm. It's so pretty. Next day, get rid of it. Now it just requires us to snow blow it and all these other things. We have these changing seasons in our lives and it kind of keeps us on our toes, yet there's this thing going on in life that is a constant thread of difficulty and strangeness and, and trying to wrap our heads around how we're supposed to approach it and, and what is it doing to us for the long term and our fears and concerns and we need to see some things change just like we're experiencing with these seasons and yet in some ways... It's not happening. And uh, when we come to the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at in the New Testament, it's Peter's letter to us, uh, his, his first letter to his uh, readers that were scattered everywhere. And so First Peter, we've come up now through three chapters. We're coming to chapter 4. And we're starting this, and, and Peter is going to um, really get very serious on what his readers are supposed to do in the midst of a very hopeless season in life. And so if you've missed any previous messages and you're coming to this late or you're coming in on this, for one thing, let me just say that's totally fine. I'm glad you're jumping in. We'll try to make it applicable even if you've missed uh, the teaching from the first three chapters. But we make those available um, in, in our historical catalog, if you will, Facebook and website and things like that. But if you're coming to this, you might come to this passion and say, I knew that Christians would talk about this at some point. I knew that they would say, don't do the bad stuff and only do the good stuff and life will be fine. But if you're missing the context of what Peter was really writing about, he's not just slapping us on the wrist saying, don't do bad stuff. You see, Peter has been building a perspective for his readers, for the followers of Jesus Christ, who are finding themselves kind of wayward, uh, uh, believers without a home and, and outside of a context that gives them fulfillment and peace and safety and all the things that they would have normally taken for granted have been taken away from them. Ringing any bells? 2020? And so what his hopeful message is, is that because of the life of Christ, because of the sacrifice that he's made, because of the hope that he has built within us, that what we endure in this day and age, what we endure for now does not have to last, but it does count for preparing us for what's to come. 
So one of the great, still helpful, I'm not really looking down at it, but what, one of the great um, openers in so many sermons I've heard over the years was, if you found out you only had one week to live, what would you do? The reason why I don't think that question ever gets old is because we all just said, wonder what I'd do. And that's very helpful to us. We've probably said things like, I would be um, immersed in time with my family. I would go and make wrongs right with some of the people that have offended me or I have offended. I would go fix those things. I would finally tell my my coworker or my neighbor about the hope that lies within me. I'd finally tell them about Jesus. I've been shy about that in the past or I've felt intimidated about it. Now all bets are off. I'm going to meet him in a week. I better have said something about him soon. And we would have those motivations to be able to enter into that. And that's why it's a great question. But the problem with right now, the longer we go through seasons of kind of despair, we see in some cases our savings and other securities and things just kind of slipping away from us. We can easily slip into a place of despair where that question may not be such a bummer. It might be one of the things where we might go, you mean it's coming to an end? You mean I don't have to go into more uncertainty in 2021 and, and beyond everything? You mean he's going to take me out of this whole mess? And, and, and that's actually sort of a positive statement coming from, from God's people. But there are those without Christ that are, that are starting to realize, I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't wait for the seasons to change anymore. They're just not changing fast enough. They're not, they're not hopeful to me. And so Peter knows that he's speaking in a context where even if you want to be a well-wisher and you want to go, well, I'm sure things will turn around. I'm sure we'll be okay and kind of be a cheerleader that it's not easy over time to keep pulling yourself out of a slump. These difficulties that we endure are compounded today. They're unique to this generation. Suffering has always been a part of every generation. It's not that that ever goes away, but it's just, it's being delivered in a unique way. For one, it's never happened to you and me before like it is. We could say, yeah, in the early 1900s and that, but we weren't there then, were we? So it's unique to us because we haven't gone through it. But in other ways too, it's complicated by the fact that we know almost, we think, everything that's going on around the world. And in the past, people didn't have to carry such burdens of things that were so distant from them that they couldn't change. We're fighting with new levels of of, of uh, uh, situations that are out of our control and we're pulling our hair out trying to figure out how do we get some control back. And so rather than just another message that, that tells Christians to tighten your belt, to get over yourself, put a smile on your face, grin and bear it, those kinds of things, I think Peter steps into the situation with something that we can actually sink our teeth into, that he comes into it with encouragement that actually sets us right. And even though he's not necessarily in this passage talking about heaven as a location, he's definitely continuing his theme of that the, the life that we have on this earth is not the one that we should be solely focused on. I would put it to you this way, that Peter is saying that setting your heart on heaven settles your heart on earth. And we have a lot of unsettled hearts. And if we're being honest, ours are, aren't they? I admit it. I'm in the scriptures daily. I'm surrounded by God's people. I get to do this for my day job. And yet 
some days I really got a good handle on this and hopeful in what the Lord's doing. And some days I'm like, I don't understand any of this. What is the point of any of this? And so that is the seasons that we are being brought through. So where do we turn when our normal human resources have run dry? What do we reach for when we can't control the uncontrollable? And I think this is the message that comes to us from chapter 4 of First Peter. So let's get right in. We're going to just take the first verse and extract a few things from it. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is really a, a, a pretty straightforward message today. This passage is laid out for us really clean and, and structured really well. Remember last week we had a couple of strange places we had to spend some time in talking about what was that about Jesus going and proclaiming the message to prisoners in hell that were, that were put there in Noah's time and baptism is the thing that saves us. And we had to clarify a lot of those things. This passage doesn't deliver many tricks or many things that we have to wrestle with that are not right on the nose, but there are a couple of things. But he starts, therefore, he starts right off tying us, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, there's a little bit of a weird thing that Peter is addressing that we miss because, uh, you know, we got all our doctrine perfect today, hint, hint, wink, wink. But what was going on in Peter's time is that people were saying that Jesus was only appearing to kind of at various stages doing the work that God had sent him to do. This idea of him being born in, in Bethlehem and living a normal uh, existence, growing up as a man, learning a trade, hanging out with friends, eating real food, all that kind of stuff. They were starting to mystify all of this and get away from that, that he was a, a physical person that went through this and then died physically for our sins. And you might rightly ask, why would they invent such a thing? And the question, the answer is, I don't know. Why do we invent error? It's this weird thing. Instead of just taking it as it's written, people are like, I don't really like the way that is. Let's change this and let's see if we can create a new sect or a new branch of doctrine or something. And it seems like so many of those things come from a place of pride. Like, I want to lead my own thing. I want to see how many people I can throw off and stuff. But for whatever reason... That was going on at the time. To what end? I don't really understand. But Peter is saying, since therefore Jesus actually literally died in the flesh, we should do something with that. He says we should arm ourselves. Think about he's going on the attack. We should arm ourselves with the same clear thinking that we would become people of resolve is what Peter is telling us to do. And and this doesn't come naturally for you and me. It's not like we we wake up every day saying, I hope all the plans and the expectations that I have for the day get thwarted. I hope someone throws me off my game. I hope I get new insults that I didn't see coming. I hope the tire goes flat. I hope the boss yells at me. We don't come in preparing for those things naturally because we want to pretend like they're not showing up, Right? If I just, let me just live in my cocoon, today's going to go fine. The bill's going to get paid magically. Spouse is going to love me. Kids are going to obey. All those things. And yet the opposite happens. So Peter's like, we kind of need to get ahead of this thing. Understand that things are coming that you can't stop. There's a little bit of subtlety in this too that I want to point out. 
You see, Peter is not calling you and me to suffer. If I said to you, go and suffer, and, and that's what you heard me say, and you say, well, that's a man of God, a man of the cloth, I like to say. I've never worn one. It sounds official. Man, if I wore a cloth today, it might help with the whole head. Anyway, I move on. If I say to you, go and suffer for Christ, what would you do? Well, if you're a God-pleasing, God-fearing individual, you would go and invent ways to make your life harder. It's what the ascetics did. They said, we want to prove our love and devotion to God. So we're going to take the whips and we're going to flog ourselves and we're going to skip all the meals and we're going to drain ourselves of any pleasure and all that kind of stuff. We're going to avoid all those things. Why? Because he said we're supposed to suffer for him, but that isn't really what Peter is saying. He's saying, prepare your minds for the suffering that will come anyway. There's a difference in that. Go find it yourself, be in control, prove how much you love God, go out there and let everyone see how much you're suffering. Not really. Even, even when we look below the surface of that, what's really going on, as subtle as it may be, is a great human pride that I'm good enough to show that I love God more than them. So Peter doesn't say go and suffer. He says, arm yourself with the same thinking that Jesus had, which was, I am going into suffering for the good of others, for the will of my father, for the glory of his name. So it was a preparing of your mind for the things that you are going to experience. One of the most difficult parts of suffering is accepting the reality of our circumstances. We live in denial. We have these self, self-help statements that say i can will myself out of this it's not really happening to me it only has the power of my life that i give it we say those kinds of things and yet this this suffering this trial this testing is just beating on your door saying i'm not going anywhere you either put your head down and enter into it I'm, or I'm going to just keep on knocking. And eventually the, the hinges on your door are going to start giving away and the wood's going to start ripping. And I'm coming in whether you like it or not. So Peter says, have the same mindset. Arm yourself with it. And then he gives us this strange statement that we have spent a minute in. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It might sound like what he's saying is, so if you suffer, then you will no longer be tempted to sin. You won't be guilty of sin anymore. And I'm like, sign me up. If you tell me, okay, this suffering will last a week. And then at the end of that week, you'll no longer have those temptations. You'll no longer have those failures. You'll no longer have the things that hurt you, your relationships and the world around you. I'm like, it sounds worth it. Let's make the trade right now. But let's look at this a little bit closer. Now, I think on first blush, this could be related to something we dipped in and out of. I think it was last week, if not the week before. Um, in Romans 6, where Paul says that when we are dead in Christ, that the power of sin no longer rules and reigns over us. That you and I do not need to give in to the compulsions or what we're going to see in our text here, the passions of our flesh. That does have the power that we give it. And so in our death in Christ, we are united with him in it and then he has removed the power of that thing. So I, I think that's definitely 
in view with what Peter is talking about here, because that is true. That doesn't go away. But it seems like Peter is making the application in a hopeful way to a hurting audience to say a couple of different things. I, I'm going to pull a quote out of my study notes. I don't know if some of you have a study Bible here. Um, I've got one I'm getting used to over this last year or so, and I found the notes to be pretty encouraging, helpful as sort of commentary in it. So if you don't have something like that, I encourage you to look for it because it, it lines up some of the meanings of some of the verses. It just helps with your reading of the scriptures. And I share this quote as an encouragement on some of the kinds of things that you'd get out of it. The English Standard Version that I'm using has a note like this. When it comes to that statement, whoever has suffered has ceased from sin. He says, if you're willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in your life. The emphasis is, if you and I are willing to go through it, if, if the Lord has prescribed it, if the world has forced it, if all those things, and we walk into this with a willingness to take it on, we have severed the nerve center of sin in our life. It proves that we're living more for more, we're, we're living for more than just our own pleasure. Uh, sin comes from a place of you and I needing what we think we need. And it's a, it's a focus on me. It's a focus on what I need in order to get through my day, my life, my whatever. I deserve it, so I should have it. I can't stand against it, so I have to give into it. It's a very me-centered equation. That's where sin comes from each and every time. And being willing to engage in suffering shows that, that you are, um, you are eliminating the base of sin in your life and you are yielding yourself to live for the will of one higher than you, namely the Lord God Almighty. We'll see a little bit more of that in our text. So there's a couple of layers in this statement that I think would be helpful to us. Whoever is willing to suffer, whoever has suffered, has ceased from sin. The first layer, I would say, is that we don't embrace the call to suffer while we cling to the passions of our former life. We find an incompatibility. I am not going to continually give in to sin if I'm willing to suffer for Christ. Those two things are not compatible because sin serves me. Suffering is willing to serve others. Why take the beating if there's nothing in it for me? And so we find an incompatibility there. It's, it's the same example I get when I run into people that have uh, enlisted for the military or all the stories we've heard of our history of the sacrifices that have been made for you and I to enjoy the freedom. Something as simple, like we said around the 4th of July, the ability to cook out and light off some fireworks that, that those had gone into that signing their name on the enlistment sheet, knowing that that sacrifice might be asked of them. And in doing so, they were engaged in the mission so that all the other joys and the comforts and the things that they left behind were so valuable to them that they said, I'm going to go off and protect them. There's a similar essence of the sacrifice for that, for that person who's willing to engage in suffering. They understand that I can't do both. I can't, I can't enjoy all the pleasures of the homeland and still defeat the enemy on their soil. They know they're exchanging one for the other. That's the first layer. I'd say the second layer is a little bit more nuanced, but it's enduring suffering well 
eliminates a great amount of temptation to keep sinning. Why? Because you've grown in your connection to Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3.10, he says, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus. How would he know him? He would know him first in the power of his resurrection, but that he would also share in his sufferings, being like him in his death. This is the point I'm trying to make. Because Jesus suffered for us so horrifically. And, and Paul's mindset was, if he went through that, if he calls me to it, I want to enter into that. Why? What was Paul's aim? Paul's aim was to get to be more uh, intimately acquainted with who Jesus was. Now, you think about this. You go through the suffering of somebody else. Some of us have had friends or family members or just people, acquaintances in our life that you're like, I don't really have much of a connection with them. I don't really think they have my back. I don't really know if I trust their motives or something. Then all of a sudden you go through something unique to you and they, for some reason, get it. They've been through something similar. They have this strange sympathy for you at the right time in the right way. All of a sudden you bond differently because they get your struggle. And now at the picnics and the clam bakes and all those other things, you would never say anything disparaging about that person, even though you couldn't stand it before. Why? Because you've united in this connection. We've both been through the same stuff. And I'm looking at this person completely different now. I see their personality in a new light, much more forgiving. And so this is what happens when you and I engage in the suffering that was once Christ's and now it's ours. We start to see what put him on the tree to begin with. We start to see that our own sins, our mistakes, our, our very being, being away from the holiness of God was, was, was the reason why he died and suffered on the tree. And so now we go through that and then he helps us endure in these sufferings. The next temptation that comes my way, I start to think about, I don't want to do that to him again. That's my friend. When I needed him most, when it was, when I was in my darkest hour, he came through for me. I don't want to sell him out with this cheap pleasure. And it starts to do battle with the temptations of our flesh because we know what it cost him. And we've, we've united with him in his sufferings. It's putting on the mindset of Jesus Christ. We are surrounded now with a growing plague of loneliness and depression. Addictions are on the rise. Suicides are on the rise. Our world is checking out. And they're struggling with this inability to comprehend and to control the uncontrollable. And as we engage in the mind of Christ, we start to see that what he did is he looked out over the multitudes. He didn't look at them and say, uh, uh, I got to win them over. Or I got to fix them. I got to, you know, they, they, we got to win this debate. We've got to do any of those kinds of things. I don't, I have to go fix their social structures or their political systems or any of those kinds of things. Scripture says he looked out at them and had compassion on them because they were what? Sheep without a shepherd. When we start to recognize that all these debates and screaming matches and things that we're having are simply coming from a place of freaking out and losing our grip on reality is really what's happening. It's a hyper-focused attention to the here and now with no perspective of eternity. God's people start to move into that with compassion. God's people start to enter into the suffering of taking it on the chin because 
It's not about me. It's not about them disagreeing with me. It's about the fact that they are losing their grip on hope. They're losing their connection with humanity that would touch them, would move towards them like Jesus would. And they found no purpose because the will of God isn't interesting to them. It's not prevalent to them. It's not even perhaps available to them because the spirit of God does not live within them. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately and praying about this as the Lord is impressing upon me that the church is going to need a season of renewal. A renewal in what? We talk about going back to the basics all the time and that's where we're at. We need hope. That's why First Peter speaks to our time. We need connection. That's why people need to be really released to love people in compassion. Whether you understand the circumstances or have all the answers or not, that isn't the requirement. And we have to help people find purpose in the will of God by, by submitting to the call of Jesus Christ. This is how we become a person of resolve, as Peter is encouraging us just in the first verse. I promise the next will move quicker. Let's go to verse two, verses two and three. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And I love this phrase. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or the unbelievers want to do. For the time that is past suffices. He's basically saying, whatever time you put in back then doing those things, let's just... Let's just admit that that was fine for the time. That was sufficient for you to come to the place that you're at now and let's leave it there. That was sufficient for for getting into trouble, for doing things that unbelievers do. It's in your past now. What was in, in the past? Living in sensuality, which we typically refer to as things of a sexual nature, but sensuality is broader than that. If when you and I live based on what what it makes us feel like, that that the trouble we can get into with how much we eat or what relationships we change or how much money we spend and all those kinds of things, not just a sexual thing, that sensuality is pervasive in all these areas because why? I do the things that give me a feeling reaction and that's what comforts me. Even if tomorrow it lies to me, even if tomorrow it walks out on me, But what I need right now is my fix. I need my feeling. So he says, that's what you used to do. That's what the unbelievers used to do. That's what they do. That that was sufficient for them, but you know that it's empty. So it's moved you on. So he says, no longer living in sensuality or in passions, which is now turning towards the uh, unbridled aspect of some of those feelings, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, in lawless idolatry. I mean, that list should tell us something. That list should tell us that Peter was writing to a pretty corrupt culture. And we like to think because we've gone further down the calendar and the timeline that it can't get any worse. And, and I don't think that that's really true. I think that mankind has proven we can continually get worse. But we've started in a pretty bad place. I don't think the the ugliness of sin or the depth that we can sink to is is any worse now than it even was then. It's it's cr- more creative, if you will, or it's it's uh, showing up in different forms. But these things were actually societal acceptance. They were part of some uh, worship practices, if you will, for false gods. There was endorsement behind these practices. 
And Peter is saying we are putting those things behind us because they were sufficient to tell us, they were sufficient to prove to us that they couldn't pay off like they promised they would. Now, I want to ask, because if you're watching this at home or on a screen somewhere, even if you're not watching it live, I want to ask you to do something for me. You can't be in the room and shout amen like I just had 50 people blow the roof off it. Right, people? No, they're lying to you. You shouldn't lie to people in God's house. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, what I want to hear from is I want to hear from those of you out online. If you are recognizing life used to be really different before coming to Christ, because that's really where the calling is. If it's not really different from where you were, let's see if Jesus has shown up. If you're recognizing, yep, yeah, uh, my life has changed. What I was then is not who I am now. I want to hear from you. You can't shout amen or anything, but you can send us a message. I want to he- see a hashtag because I'm really cool. I don't know anything about hashtags. I want to see a hashtag, been there. I want to hear you say, yep, I have been there. I have lived in those days. That was my past. That is who I am. And I can testify that those things, that lifestyle does not pay off like it promises it will. That's who we are. We are people that have been there because we have woken up to the fact that no matter how hard I pursue that feeling, that I start paying the price all over the place, I still wake up the next day with the headache. I still wake up the next day with the torn apart relationship. I still go into the job that is now failing me because I'm losing my grip on it. All of those things now I'm experiencing because I, I, I'm chasing this sensuality a lifestyle that is promising me something that it never delivers. So what is living for the will of God? Peter's already helped us out with this along the way. Back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he said, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Now, holiness isn't a stuffy thing. Holiness isn't, like I said, you know, wearing the cloth and and looking the part and, and just so everyone's afraid to be around you or they can't relate to you. But what holiness is, is a dedication. It is a setting apart that I am reserved for the purposes of God. Because the God that I serve is holy. He is distinct. He is unique. He led his children through the Old Testament to observe all of these very strange and unique practices to set them out as a nation set apart. And so the call for us is that we embrace the calling on our life in a unique and and profound way that others will say, you don't really do things like us, do you? doesn't necessarily mean that you're trying to offend them at every turn. It doesn't mean that you're, you're there because you're better than them. And this is part of the mistake, if we're being honest, that churches have made over the generations is that we, we leave the nasty stuff behind because it's icky and gross. And I don't know how anybody could ever do that. And yet the reality is, is those that have put on an air of holiness and, and separation from all that, it's the grossest thing I've ever seen, end up falling flat in the pit themselves. Because they have failed to acknowledge that the reason why it's a temptation is because it is attractive. The reason why it is a temptation is because there's something in us that wants to engage. But the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
can keep us from those things that continue to let us down. Peter isn't saying be holy because that stuff is icky and you don't want to get any on you. What Peter is saying is you're changing your values. You're prioritizing your life differently because the things that used to have great significance in your life have let you down. And now all of a sudden you start to see because I've given you new eyes that these things are the places where you find fulfillment only because they are in the person of Jesus Christ. So how can we know the will of God? We move into holiness. We reserve ourselves for his purposes, for his calling. Also, he skipping ahead in chapter two, he told us in 11 and 12, he said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So the other part of our calling, the other part of knowing and doing the will of God is doing the right thing in a way that others could actually recognize you're doing it that our conduct would be distinct instead of us just saying, I go to church and people go, you do? Really? That it would actually be conduct that would honor the Lord, that would set him apart from the rest of the crowd. And other people would be like, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You seem like that type of person, whether for good or bad. But it's different. It's distinct. It's honorable conduct so that the unbelievers can see what you're all about. And again, this is where we have blown it in the past as Christians. We show it off. I would never be guilty of the things you're all guilty of. I go to church on Sunday morning with the biggest Bible I can find under my arm while you're out there clipping the hedges. It's this showy kind of, I'm doing it because I'm better than the rest of society. And Peter is saying, no, you're doing it because you have hope. The church is an alternative to culture, not a reflection of it. The thing that you and I need to ask is who are we serving? Peter has put out this really dark list of things that we know are not becoming of those who are in Christ. But there is this compulsion that we have to engage in them or forms of them. And we wonder where it comes from. We wonder why what I want to be isn't always who I am. The question then becomes, am I comfortable? Am I okay continuing to be a servant to a dead master? The gospel has told us that you and I have died in Christ and our sin has been nailed to the cross with him. It no longer has the power in our life that we give it. Yet we continue to surrender to it. So the question would be, should we be a servant to a dead master or would it be more beneficial for us to be a servant of a living one? This is why I said at the outset that Peter is telling us that setting your heart on heaven settles your heart on earth. These are the things that practically get us through day to day because just hanging on, just cleaning up your act doesn't really cut it. It's how the Lord changes our value system, how he gives us a priority over the things that please him because they are promising to us. Those are the things that give us hope to endure. That's how we live for the will of God. And the last point of this before we, as we start moving towards wrapping it up, is that if we are going to engage in this, if we're going to move forward with setting our minds towards having the same mindset as Christ, um, uh, living for the will of God, we need to expect some consequences. So in an anti, um, 
uh, prosperity message that would say, if you just do things right, all these things line up well, they'd have to wrestle with this passage coming because Peter simply says in verse four, with respect to this, that is not doing those things with those folks that you used to do those things and those folks with, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Isn't it amazing how so many times you go and you tell your friend or your family member something, I'm changed, I'm cleaned up, I'm washing the blood, I, I've taken a new passion for going to church and being around people. Why isn't it always like that? Good for you. You needed that, we all need that, and probably I'm just two steps behind you. Now that I hear what you're saying, makes perfect sense. How, t- just go through my life and tell me what I need to get rid of in order to follow your God. It's really not that kind of a celebration usually, is it? There's a shock value to this. There's a, wait, 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 wait a second, don't be too hasty. You, I know who, I know you, I know who you are. Don't start pretending to be someone else now. Where does that come from? Is it just because people don't want to see other people improve? Is it just because people don't like it when things go their way? I don't think it is to be fair to the population of mankind. I think there's certainly people that exist that are just jealous and and angry and mad, but I don't think that's always what it is. You see, it's a foreign concept to those without Christ to abstain from things that have derailed us. Why wouldn't you try to get what you can now? There's nothing waiting for us after this. Or if there is something waiting for us, they'll understand They'll know it's hard living in this life, that we're basically in hell on earth. And so, you know, I got a little bit from me and who can fault me for that? There's kind of a casual attitude about it because there isn't this expectation that there is something really waiting for us, that there is somebody who we'll stand before, as our text will tell us, and be the judge. And so without an eternal concept, without an eternal mindset, Why wouldn't you just try to get whatever you could? And yet you and I know as we've been down that path, we say, but it it doesn't pay off. We keep coming back to there's got to be something more than this. There is certainly an aspect of when you and I come to Christ and he starts transforming us and we start to value things differently that it it does kind of instigate a little bit john 3 20 says for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed there is a shock value in all of this because you're shining a flashlight in their eyes now i gotta be honest with you i've been doing church stuff for a long long time since i was really little and I come to passages like this and there's a part of me where I just want to skip over it because I've seen it so harsh and judgmental to others, those who are not in Christ. And in, in order to make them uncomfortable on purpose, in order to scare them out of hell and into heaven and all those things. And I honestly don't mean to be really critical or, or harsh on, in a, a they versus them kind of conversation. Like, we've got it all figured out. We're the clean ones and they're the wicked ones and all that kind of stuff. Because I think for far too long the church has disinfected itself away from the sins of the world so that we are no longer that effective as a light. Because we feel afraid to engage. We feel like we're going to get some on us if we're around sinners. 
And so Peter is giving hope to a people that are right in the thick of it and in the midst of it. And his encouragement isn't go and retreat, hide away, build your monastery. Don't let any of that infectious sin stuff get on you. What he's saying is walk into it with the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. That is the stuff that stands out. And it is shocking. But... It won't always be pleasant. They won't applaud you. They won't roll out the red carpet. He says in second part of verse four, they will malign you. Not everybody. Some of us have good friends and family who are not antagonistic towards your pursuit of faith. But there is certainly a system out there. There are some that just like to uh, agitate. There are some who are completely offended by your new life in Christ and they will not hold back from telling you. Peter also said this to us in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You see, it's a, requ- it's a recoil from actually feeling judged by your transformation. Even if you're like, that's not my intention. I'm not trying to tell you. I'm just, I just am. I don't know, you probably have heard how um, yeah, in a in a boiling pot of water, when people put uh, crabs in there, have you heard about how when one of them's trying to escape the? I've never seen this take place. I've just heard the rumor of this that as one's trying to escape, others will reach up and grab them by the claw and pull them back in. Now I'm going to be fra- fair to the crab community, okay? To the crustacean environment that they live in. I don't think crabs have thought ahead. Hey, who are you to get out of this boiling water? If we're all dying, we're dying together. You get back in here. I'm sure in their own little crab brains, they're just thinking, I need to get out and that that other crab's a ladder and I'm going to climb over them and it never works out. The crab falls in and none of them make it out because they won't help one another in their own little crab lives. But the point for us is this, is that it's often very difficult for us to acknowledge that somebody has found hope, someone has found freedom, and I just need to be encouraging of that, thankful for that, even if it makes me look like I am unwilling to find the same thing, that it's offensive. It's, it brings about a feeling of being judged, even if we're not intending to. So why would Peter bring this up just to make us feel weird about it, self-conscious about it? No, because he said, arm yourself with the same mindset that embraces this, that expects it, that sees it coming and transforms our mind to be able to walk in it. Because in verse five, there will be an ultimate judgment. He says, they'll give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So what you're saying, Peter, is those that have offended me, those that have ridiculed me, those that have laughed at me, those that have made my existence difficult and everything, you're saying they're going to get it in the end and I can celebrate and rejoice that at some point I'm going to be vindicated. He is saying, yeah, this is part of the truth of it. But he's certainly not encouraging an attitude towards it. I think what maturity does in the Christian life is that we start to see that we have been rescued from something that is so horrific and so terrifying that others will endure, or they'll, they'll be faced with. We start to develop a compassion that says, I don't want anyone else to have to go through this. Yeah, but they made your life a living hell. Why would you be okay with them uh, just getting off the hook? 
because I was let off the hook. I think of Ephesians 4.32, I want to sing a little kid's song that talks about it. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one. Come on, church. No. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Ephesians 4 and 32. There you go. Thank you, my floating head will take a bow now. You missed the point probably of my verse because I was making it all about me. But the, the verse is saying we forgive others because of all that we've been forgiven. So rather than staying stuck in a pattern of revenge or a desire for vindication, we can start having a heart of compassion that as others hear the freeing message of the gospel, even those that have made our lives difficult, we rejoice in the fact that they've been given hope in this life and they've responded to it. That's why Peter says in verse 6, as we close this out, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Don't think he's going back to this Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison that we said in chapter 3. What he's saying here is this is why the gospel was preached even to those who eventually died. Those in Christ, they received Jesus for salvation and they died. Why did that happen to them? They were judged in the flesh the way people are. Scripture says it's appointed for every man to die. We all have an appointment with death. That is part of the human judgment, the curse that we have found on ourselves as a result of sin in the garden. So they were judged the way that all mankind is judged in the flesh, but one day they might live in the spirit the way God does. Remember we said last week that Jesus was resurrected in the spirit realm? That this promise is for us that even as we are marching towards the grave, we know that it doesn't end there. I'm going to try another hashtag because I'm cool like that. Hashtag new life for those of you that have experienced that transformation. We want to be praying for our church as we recognize what we've been rescued from, but but really asking, Lord, give me the sensitivity and the boldness to, to engage in that new life with those who do not have the hope that I have. I see unsettled hearts everywhere around me, so I want them to understand that setting your heart on heaven settles your heart in earth. We resolve our minds to live for God's will. We prepare our hearts for the consequences that come when we do so. And we trust that all of our efforts, all of our steps in this regard are foregoing the passions of the flesh. It's not all for naught. We're living for heaven now as we do that. Would you stand, please? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, hope is ours, undeserved, unmerited hope. The favor, Lord, that you've shown us. Lord, it would be an absolute crime and sin to keep it to ourselves. To not recognize, Lord, that there is a hopeless generation that needs the transforming power of Jesus Christ. We stumbled on it, Lord, only because of your grace. We weren't smart enough to receive it. We weren't humble enough to be transformed by it, Lord, on our own. It's all you're doing. And so, Lord, help us not to be in a position of arrogance, 
that you've rescued us out of the futility of our former lives, but help us, Lord, to be rejoicing that we no longer bang our heads against the wall in frustration, but yet we have the ability to show others where their hope can be found. So God, give us a focus, give us a renewed sense of purpose, Lord, in these strange and unchanging days, that this would be about building your kingdom rather than our own. Be kind, Lord, to your people as you've always been. Be merciful to us, Lord, as we get some of this right and mess up a whole bunch of it. Lord, your work is done through us, and for that we're thankful. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.